0: For spring break of my freshman year of high school, our family drove from Michigan to Gulf Shores, Alabama. We were traveling home after a week in the sun with that post-vacation resignation when somewhere near Kentucky, the wind picked up across the highway. My dad clutched the steering wheel a bit harder and we forged ahead. The vehicle directly in front of us was an extended cab pickup truck pulling a travel trailer. The trailer was quite long, and we watched as it began to sway in the wind. Our concern increased as the trailer became like a pendulum arcing from side to side across the two lanes of northbound traffic. My dad pumped the brakes. Suddenly the enormous bulk before us spun to the right and flipped onto its side. The trailer, now lying sideways, dragged the truck across the highway lanes, eventually twisting the truck perpendicular to the pavement as well. The whole operation screeched as it skidded across the shoulder and plummeted down the embankment. The truck was out of our sight line, yet we could see the very top corner of the trailer's roof. There was smoke, but no fire yet visible. My dad did not hesitate to pull our car over to the side of the highway as traffic continued to speed past us. He put the car in park and bound from his seat toward the accident. I followed him. My mom prayed. As we stood on the shoulder of the road, all we could see was the underside of the truck, The driver's door faced the sky. The travel trailer was somehow still attached, but was bent even lower into the gully. The smell of smoke and tar was pungent. My dad climbed up the underbelly of the truck as if it was a thick metal ladder. He stood on the frame of the driver's door and tried to open it up into the wind. He somehow managed to do so. Then he lowered the top of his body into the cabin of the truck and lifted a stunned man out. I reached up to help the man down the hot pipes and framing of his truck. Next, my father had to climb partially into the front seat to help the woman who was dangling precariously from her seatbelt. She was inches away from the windshield, which had miraculously remained intact. Eventually, I was able to help her from the vehicle onto the pavement where she collapsed into my arms, words of gratitude bubbling out of her like soda. The sirens of emergency vehicles could be heard in the near distance, so we jumped back into the car and continued our road trip home. All would be well. Only later did I look down at my dad's tennis shoe and notice how the rubber sole had melted into the shape of the axle rods of a pickup truck. Someone like my father in a situation like this one is often referred to as a good, a good Samaritan. A person who rescues another or goes out of his or her way for a stranger often gets this label. Good Samaritans are people we refer to every day. Hospitals and relief agencies and charities have Samaritan in their names. And we know what that means. It means people who help or organizations that work for good in the face of danger, illness, or disaster. This naming is rooted in a story we read from the book of Luke. Jesus is telling a parable about a man who helps another. The parable concludes with Jesus saying, go and do likewise. This summer at Mayflower, we are studying parables. Eight weeks of parables and eight ways to change your perspective. Parables can and should change our perspective. As you look at the image on the front of your bulletin, it depends on your perspective, doesn't it, as to who is giving and who is receiving the fruit. Parables are stories Jesus told to make a point or multiple points stories to challenge the status quo, stories to get us thinking more deeply about God and life and what it means to be a person of faith. Today, as we seek to be more like Jesus and more like good Samaritans in this broken world, let's take another look at this familiar story. In Amy Jill Levine's book, Short Stories with Jesus, the New Testament and Jewish Studies professor questions have we domesticated Jesus' provocative parables? Have we, in our current time and place, softened the messages Jesus was so adamant about? Do we need to look again at what Jesus taught and to whom? Perhaps we can gain further insight if we dig a bit deeper into the context. Jesus was a Middle Eastern Jewish rabbi addressing crowds of largely Jewish people In the first century, interestingly, this parable begins with a questioner, a lawyer. We could cue the lawyer jokes right now, and that would not be far off. Lawyers in the first century were a mixed bag of characters. We see this one trying to trap Jesus with his question, as opposed to humbly asking the question to gain knowledge. He is essentially putting Jesus on the stand. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He begins his question with the phrase, What must I do? As if he has a checklist he's working on, or he has a specific answer in mind, and he's waiting for Jesus to get it right. It is a test. What is interesting is that this man is educated and would have known his Torah. His knowledge of the Old Testament law is apparent so he would know that the Torah is much more concerned with how to live today rather than issues of life after death. The Torah assumes a life with God forever, a gift given, not something to attain or do. As Christians, we also do not have to ask, what must I do? We believe that Jesus' death and resurrection make eternal life possible for all. And this is a gift freely given. There is nothing we can do to earn this. God's love is unconditional, and God's grace is abundant. So Jesus answers the lawyer's question with another question. And he quotes scripture, that essentially we are to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. But, Levine writes, were the lawyer wise, he would have thanked Jesus and gone off to show his love. Instead, he proves his malevolent intent toward Jesus by posing another, even more inappropriate question. To ask who is my neighbor is the polite way of asking who is not my neighbor or who does not deserve my love. This lawyer is very concerned with self-justification, Aren't there some people or people groups that are too dangerous to love? Don't some people make choices that I don't agree with so I can distance myself? Doesn't it make sense to stay away from certain risky situations? Isn't this just the sensible thing to do? So, in response to the lawyer's second question, Jesus tells this story. A man was attacked going from Jerusalem. To Jericho, This man is anonymous, and this road he was traveling was notoriously dangerous. What is interesting is that the audience Jesus was speaking to would have identified with the beaten man. Most of us identify with the Good Samaritan, don't we? We point to things we have done or observed others do to help those in need. But Jesus' first-century Jewish audience knew what it was to be victimized. The word used to describe the robbers is lestai, which is most closely translated as members of an armed gang. These gangs were common, and often Jews were their prey. Jesus' audience would have pictured themselves as the ones waiting and hoping for help. Jesus sets up the story with the three men who encounter the victim. He is utilizing the folkloric rule of three. How many jokes begin with the line, a priest, a rabbi, and a minister walk into a bar? (laughs) When you hear Huey, Dewey, and you can fill in Louie, snap, crackle, and the good, the bad, and the ugly, stop, drop, and roll. Bacon, lettuce, and tomato, right? The list goes on. To Jesus' Jewish audience, when he begins with the priest, then moves on to a Levite, they know that the next man mentioned will be an Israelite. Even in the Old Testament, this list of three is common. This is an order of Jewish religious leaders that Jesus' listeners would have anticipated. Levine writes, His audience, surprised by this lack of compassion on the part of the priest and the Levite, would have presumed both that the third person would be an Israelite and that he would help. Imagine their surprise when the third person to stop and the one to help is the one they least expected. To understand the parable as did its original audience, we need to think of Samaritans as the enemy, as those who do the oppressing, writes Levine. The term good Samaritan would have been as strange as saying good murderer. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. The Jews thought of themselves as the pure descendants of Abraham, and the Samaritans were mixed race. This racial and religious difference created a hatred so visceral That often Jewish travelers between Galilee and southern Judea would walk around rather than through Samaritan territory, which lengthened their trip significantly. To hear Jesus say Samaritan would have created significant dissonance for his listeners. It was as if Jesus had named a drug dealer, a rapist, or fill in the blank with your most despised politician. Help! came from the least expected place. Goodness and grace came from the most surprising source. Samaria still exists today. It has many names. The West Bank, occupied Palestine, greater Israel. This is an ancient story with modern application. And for us, maybe the tension in the Middle East feels far away and not as immediate in our daily lives. But it does make me wonder, who is my Samaritan? Who is the person or group of people I avoid? What neighborhood do I drive around instead of through because I'm scared? Who have I convinced myself is unable to be a blessing? What group do I make blanket statements about without remembering that every group, is comprised of people made in the image of God. I have spent time in places like Rwanda and Lebanon, where the divisions and enmity are palpable. But I've also sat at dinner tables here, where this ugly sense of us and them is revealed. Yet, we might posit, isn't it just plain smart to be safe? Aren't there places we avoid because we're wise and we are exercising our God-given power of discernment? Well, surely we do not plunge into the eye of a hurricane on purpose or drive through a gang-riddled neighborhood with a top-down on our convertible. But do we step out of our comfort zone, our safety zone, when we're prompted? Are we looking for ways to overcome our preconceived ideas about people? Loving God and loving neighbor, insists Levine, cannot exist in the abstract. They need to be enacted. This love is not passive. It demands action. Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous speech, I've Been to the Mountaintop, references the passage in Luke that we read. His insight is important for us. He said, Now you know we use our imagination a great deal to try to determine why the priest and the Levite didn't stop. But I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible that those men were afraid. You see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. It's a winding, meandering road. It's really conducive for ambushing. You start out in Jerusalem, which is about 1,200 feet above sea level, and by the time you get down to Jericho, 15 or 20 minutes later, you're about 22 feet below sea level. That's a dangerous road. In the days of Jesus, it came to be known as the Bloody Pass. And you know, it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking and he was acting like he'd been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there, lure them there for a quick and easy seizure. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop and help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by, and he reversed the question. If I do not stop and help this man, what will happen to him? Today we will welcome five families who are currently experiencing the devastation of homelessness into our church. This space will be their temporary home. We are asking as a congregation... What is going to happen to them? And on the first Monday of every month, for many, many years, Mayflower members have traveled downtown to Degage Ministries to serve dinner to the patrons there. They are asking, what is going to happen to them? Go and do likewise, says Jesus.